0: Well, it's good to be back. Um, Appreciate all the folks that pitched in and made it easy for me to go away and spend some time with the Lord and um, had a wonderful time at the conference in California. I don't like the hotel part of it, but I do like the conference part of it. So you gotta take the good with the bad. Um, Wonderful teachings. All those are online, all these teachings. I know they're for pastors, but um, boy, the link is in our Facebook feed and I can also send it to you. It's on YouTube, you can look it up. Um, international Calvary Chapel International Pastors Conference, I'd encourage you to listen to the teachings. They're some of the best teachings I've heard um, at any of the conferences I've been to, and I've been to a lot of them. Um, not all of them, but I've been to a lot of them. Um, especially Don McClure's his last one that he gave, um, and many of you don't know him, but he was in the beginning with one Calvary Chapel before there were 1,600 Calvary Chapels. He was in the beginning. So, And he gives out some wisdom in the first 30 seconds that probably could have that had been enough to make the trip right there. And um, just very good teacher. Sandy Adams from Georgia, wonderful, wonderful teacher. Very prepared, very funny, very enjoyable to listen to, and just profound. And so uh, those are all online. Welcome to listen to those and enjoy them with me. And um, Anyway, thoroughly enjoy it. Now, I've been given some notes about Operation Christmas Child, which is coming up here this week. We begin our collection on uh, uh, Monday. Um, And it is from the 15th to the 22nd as we'll be collecting the shoe boxes that we just saw on the television here, um, the monitors. And uh, churches from all around, will be bringing them here to us. We're kind of a relay station, and then we take them down to St. Joe once we collect them all from all the churches in our area. So we'll be doing that from uh, 3 to 7 on the weekdays, and then from 1 to 4 on the weekend, if that makes sense. So 3 to 7, Monday through Friday's. A Friday, and then uh, one to four on the weekend. There is a packing party that we're going to do as a fellowship. We've got all the stuff we've been collecting. We've been talking about it. And if you want to join us for that, that'll be Friday, um, I believe, uh, at 6 p.m., The Friday the 19th. So join us for that. We kind of get the tables lined up. We kind of get a little uh, Henry Ford assembly line going, and we, and we just move along. We just get a bunch of boxes uh, for a bunch of kids. So that'll be Friday this, uh, at 6 p.m. I think that's it for Operation Christmas Child. Um, this morning, if you want to turn your Bibles to Job chapters 19 and 20, that's where we'll be. And I need to get my notes fired up here and we'll pray and we'll get started here. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the blessing that it is to us, that you provided it for us to grow, to strengthen our walk with you, to draw closer to you, to know who you are, to discover who we're supposed to be and how much you love us, God. And so we pray as we go through these two chapters that we'd hear the heart of Job, that we'd understand um, the the, the strange behavior of his friends that are trying to counsel him but are doing a miserable job, and Lord, how to apply it to our lives, God. I pray that your Holy Spirit would apply your word this morning to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. In Job 19, chapter 1, then Job answered, he's answering his buddy, How long will you torment my soul and break me in pieces with words? These ten times you have reproached me. You are not ashamed that you have wronged me. And if indeed I have erred, my error remains with me. If indeed you exalt yourselves against me and plead my disgrace against me, know then that God has wronged me and has surrounded me with his net. An interesting way to start off. It's the first time we've seen him come that close, I believe, to uh, coming against the Lord. It's God that's doing something here is what he means by that. Not that necessarily God's wronged him. It said, I don't understand what's happening. I don't understand. And remember, he doesn't have the privilege that we do of chapters one and two. So it's understandable that he doesn't understand what's happening to him. We should know that. From his perspective, all Job sees is attack. All he sees is wrath as far as he's concerned. That's what he's identified. All the trials and tribulations that are going on around him, he's identified it as wrath from God. And he doesn't understand why. His friends know. They don't know. But his friends know, as you just ask them, why this is happening to him. And it's a very dangerous thing to do that. And we'll talk about that as we get further on in this chapter, for us to look as casual observers into other people's lives to know what's happening and why it's happening in them. All we can do is see the symptoms or all we can see are the effects but we don't know why these things are taking place in a person's life. So it's a very dangerous thing for us to begin to speculate in that area. And that's what these friends are doing. And so Job calls them out. He says, I, how, how much longer are you going to speculate about my life? How much longer are you going to hit me with this over and over and over again? Um, it's, it's like, it's like you, you're intent on breaking me. Um, That can be a problem with us. And, you know, oftentimes when we see sin in somebody's life, and it it isn't judgmental to see sin in somebody's life, I think, and we'll talk about that as well. To see sin in someone's life is simply to recognize God's word is true And it's hard to not compare that to the things going on around you. So when you see things happening on the news with other people's lives, or you see these things happening and you see blatant sin, it's not that you're judging them, it's that it's obvious. It's against God's word, therefore that sin, it's not, I'm not judging you. I'm not condemning you. I'm not putting you in hell. Only God can do that. I can't judge you, but I can tell what's happening. And so when we see sin in people's lives or when we see sin in our lives or other people, our tendency in other people is to try to break them of that sin when really that's the Holy Spirit's job to do. Um, At times, it may be necessary for us to call them on it. Paul told the Corinthian church, you need to call this guy out for his sin. It's not okay that he's sitting in your crowds. It's not okay that you approve of it. It's not okay that you condone it. You need to call it out. And so that's why preaching and teaching about sin is very important in the church. I mean, that is why we come. We come to hear God's word. We're We're here to evaluate and let him evaluate ourselves where we stand. Um, that's what Psalm 119 is all about. Let me read your word and find out where you are and where I am. And if there's any difference, I need to make that change that my feet line up with your word. And so that's the point. So if we hear in church about a sin that maybe we're in, you know, full bore, uh, we're, we're all in on and we feel like we're being judged. Well, you're not being judged. You're just being called out. You're being called out to change. We're being called out to change. Well, Job, for the life of him, can't figure out what it is that he's missing because he knows he's not a perfect person. He's already explained that. And so knowing that he has fallen, he has offered up sacrifices for the sins as required by the law or by by God from Adam and Eve. Um, He knows what he's supposed to do. And so although this stuff is happening, I I feel like I'm being wronged because this is the wrong that he feels. Just tell me what it is so that I can get it right with you. I just need the conviction. What a great heart, right? Um, Job just wants the conviction of God to come into his life. That's a great prayer. It's a sort of a scary prayer, you know? But God, bring the conviction into my life. I really want to know. I'm asking you permission. I want want you, not that he needs permission, it's God, but I want to know what it is that's wrong with me. And that's an honest thing. And that moves us from being chair sitters or pew occupiers to followers or disciples of Jesus Christ. That's all the disciples did was they sat and they listened to Jesus sometimes and received what they could from him and made adjustments to their walk. And that's what everybody that listened to Jesus did. And that's what we're here to do too. So he goes, how many times are you guys going to reproach me? How how much longer is this going to happen now? He says in verse 7, if I cry out concerning wrong, I'm not heard. If I cry aloud, there is no justice. And he's talking about when I cry out to God, I'm not hearing anything from him. And that's probably the hardest thing for Job. He is used to crying out to God and feeling that and expecting that comfort to come or at least correction or some kind of interaction with the Lord. I don't know if you've ever felt that before, but you feel maybe guilt or you feel shame or you feel alone or whatever. And you, out of the depths of your heart, you cry out to God and there's comfort there that brings you peace. He's used to that. But at this time, God is being very, very silent in his life. And this is a lot like what Jesus was getting at when he says, if this cup can pass for me, Let's find another way to do this. But if not, I'll go to the cross. That's a paraphrase, but that's basically what he said. Because the cross meant alienation, separation. Um, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's very similar language here from Job. God, I've always had a conversation with you. I've always had a relationship with you. I've always cried out in the depths of my despair. Then you've always come and comforted me. It ain't happening now. What is going on? And so that's why he declares this. I'm crying out. And maybe that's for the friend's benefit too, to hear. I am crying out to find out what's wrong with me. And he's not speaking. He's not sharing. He has fenced up my way so that I cannot pass. He has set darkness in my paths. He has stripped me of my glory and has taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side and I am gone. My hope, he has uprooted like a tree. He has also kindled his wrath against me and he counts me as one of his enemies his troops come together. They build up the road against me. They encamp all around my tent. He's describing a siege. That was one of the famous. Okay. <laughs> Somebody wants a, a, you know, a form. Uh, I don't know how to turn off my. Okay. <laughs> You'd think I'd know how to turn my phone off. They want a vaccine form. Go to church first and we'll get you a form. <laughs> Anyway, he's describing a siege. Um, um, it feels like that. Now, do you remember what happened in the beginning? Is actually, it was kind of a, a reverse siege. God had put a hedge of protection around Job. And what happened in chapters one and two is God removed that protection so that anything could flood in, Satan especially, could flood in and wreak havoc in his life to see if he would denounce the Lord. And he hasn't, but it feels like to Job, what is happening? I feel so vulnerable. I feel so open. I feel so, I feel like the enemy has full access to me. Well, you're right. Now he's misunderstanding. It isn't from God, it is from the enemy, but that's what it feels like. I'm thankful for God's hedge. I'm thankful for the protection that he provides for me. I don't want to feel the full wrath or the full experience of. Uh, being on my own without God, I don't want that in my life at all. I'm not interested in seeing how tough a guy I am you know I'm, I'm glad to just sit around and, and, and play tinker toys and not oblivious to the to the enemy trying to attack my family or myself. I, I, that's fine with me. Job is feeling that pressure. he is feeling that attack completely misunderstood which is part of the attack um, and he's crying out in his in his in his despair. Verse 13, he has removed my brothers far from me, speaking of his friends, and my acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My relatives have failed, and my close friends have forgotten me. Those who dwell in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I'm an alien in their sight. I call my servants, but he gives no answer. I beg him with my my mouth. Nobody shows up. None of his servants are even listening to him. They're still employed, but they don't, ew, it's Job. My breath is offensive to my wife, and I am repulsive to the children of my own body. Now, we'll talk about that in a minute. Even young children despise me. I arise and they speak against me. All my close friends abhor me, and those whom I, whom I love have turned against me. That's part of it. That's an easy thing for me to say from a 30,000-foot you know, view of Job's life, You know, thousands of years after it's all happened. Of course, it's part of it. But if I'm going to apply this to my life, I have to understand that what is happening to Job is it's going to be left, he needs to be left, he and the Lord. And that's where you know where your walk with God, and that's where the rubber meets the road. That's how you understand where you are with the Lord, is when all the other things that we lean upon, that we trust upon, that we rely upon... Where will I be with God if all of those things are removed from me? That is my true relationship with the Lord. And I pray to God, none of us ever have to go through that. I don't want to ever know. I'm just going to get as closer and closer and closer to God as I possibly can. I don't want there to be any confusion or argument about whether J.D. really believes in God or not. I'm going to go so overboard and get so close to my Savior, my shepherd, that it's obvious that I sit in the dust of Jesus' feet. When he moves, I move. When he stops, I stop. I mean, when he stops, I want to run into him. You know, oh, sorry, I didn't know you. I mean, I want to be that close to Jesus in my life. That's what's happening to Job. Everything has to be removed. He counted his family very dear to himself, didn't he? He would offer up sacrifices for his family, not knowing whether his kids or not had sinned against God or or what during their feastings, when they weren't at their house, it was at their house, you know, the kid's house, they would pray and offer up sacrifices because he wasn't sure if they'd blasphemed the Lord or not. So the family was very important to him. His friends, he's obviously made so many friends. He's obviously been so influential in so many people's lives. That's what the counselors are telling us. The counselors are saying, you tell us all this stuff. You talk to us about this. You talk to us about that. But look at you now kind of thing. He was very vocal about his faith in God. He was very vocal about helping other people. He was involved in a lot of friends. God has removed all these things. Now, when he speaks here, and I wanted to, you know, I didn't want to gloss over this. My own kids, a couple of possibilities here. It could be grandkids. That's a possibility. But it also says, when the house fell on his children... That's what the servant told him. The house has fallen down and killed all of your children. It, he could have meant all the children in that house. He could still have young ones at home. We don't know that for sure, that all of his children have died. It could have been that just the ones that were adult children that had left and were in this house had died too. Um, but more than likely, it's the, it's the grandkids that he's talking about here. Either way, whoever it is that he's talking about, they despise him. Um, they don't even want to be around him. His wife thinks his breath is repulsive. And it's not that it is. It's that I can't even talk to her. She doesn't want to have anything to do with me. Anything I say grates on her. I don't know if you've ever had that in your marriage before. Where it's like best if you don't say anything at all, because if you say something, you know, it's just going to grate. You're not there yet or whatever. It's a very difficult place to be. And you have to figure out what's going on. Well, that's where they are in their marriage. It's like if I haven't opened my mouth, she just kind of looks at me like, "What are you? Why are you talking to me?" Kind of thing. It's, it's a, it's a betrayal uh, for him that the one he's decided to spend the rest of his life with and has committed to has decided not to do her part. One of the things I noticed about when I do weddings, uh, the vows, and I've done a lot of weddings. Um, for me, I've done a lot of. I'm sure other pastors have done way more than I have, but. Every time I go through the vows, I I almost want to say inappropriate and leave it to me to think of something inappropriate to say at a a wedding, but it's not if these things are going to happen. It's when these things happen. I almost want to say the vows that way. You promise to love them when things are good and when things are bad because they will be when you're healthy and when you're sick because you will be, you know, these are going to happen. And to not just kind of hope for the best, that I hope I hit the first ones of all that series of questions and never hit the second ones of those series of questions. I don't want bad times. I don't want sickness. I I want only the good side. No, the vows are going to happen, every bit of them. And some of you older saints know that in your marriages. Yeah, we've been through it. We've been through it. And I pray that for every young couple. These things are going to happen. His wife has decided to not be beside him in his lowest time in his life. She's decided not to support him. She doesn't have boils. She doesn't, isn't covered from head to toe. I know that she's mourning over the loss of her children. Fine. But that doesn't give her the right to alienate herself from her husband. She's in the wrong. It's sin. It's never okay. Okay. And so that's probably the hardest hitting one for him of all these things. Besides the Lord not speaking to him, it could be this. But I want to get back to this. The rejection by all these people is going to produce this next declaration that he's going to proclaim. And I don't know that it would have come without all of these people in his life leaving him. My bone clings to my flesh and uh, I'm sorry, my, my bones cling to my skin and to my flesh and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth, we use that term a lot, and probably always thought, "Well, that's weird." <laughs> He's probably talking about his gums, is what, we're, what we think. It, the translation is just weird. The skin, of, King James did it very literal. You know, the skin of your teeth. Well, that's kind of you know. I hope I don't have this to do. It's kind of a weird thought, um, but it's by the gums. And, and besides all that, what's interesting is that's the healthiest part of his body. I take note of that. Why? Why is he saved by the skin of his teeth? Why is that the only part of his body that doesn't hurt? Because that's what Satan wants him to use to curse God. It's amazing what God will leave in my life. These are the things I want you to take away. These are the things I want to be gone. It's amazing what God leaves. I take note of that in this whole story. All the kids that he found joy in and all that, but he's going to leave the wife to give him just that extra jab along the way. I'm going to hurt all of your body, but I'm going to make sure that your mouth is good and healthy so that when the time comes, you will curse God to his face because that's what I want. And I think Job understands that. I think he picks up on that. Not that it's Satan or anything like that, but he says, there's something about this. My my mouth doesn't hurt. I've been saved by the skin of my teeth. teeth. I've escaped. So he cries out to his friends here and you have to see them sitting here looking at him, give his oration. Have pity on me. Have pity on me. O you, my friends for the hand of God has struck me. And as he looks at them, what do you think he sees? Zero pity. Why do you persecute me as God does and are not satisfied with my flesh? Can't you see that I'm hurting enough? Why do you have to continue this beating? Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Well, they are, Job. And we're so thankful for it. That they were engraved on a rock with an iron pen and lead forever. And here's his declaration. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold, and not another, how my heart yearns within me. That is not the direction he was headed in his mind. He's in the middle of a trial, and a tribulation, and he's getting worse and worse. In fact, just earlier in this chapter, he says, I'm crying out to God and he doesn't hear me. I don't know why God's so mad at me. I don't know why he, God's wronged me. That's how he started this chapter. But as he looks around and he talks about all the things that are gone in his life, It's like with one burst of final energy, he screams at the top of his lungs, I know my Redeemer lives. I know it. What a beautiful, powerful moment for him. That's not what Satan wanted to hear. That's what everybody in heaven wanted to hear. And God, I don't know, but I'm guessing he probably gave Satan a little look like, yeah, you know, you see that? Oh, I love that. I encourage you to do that. I mean, it's not wrong. That's foolish for me to say. Everything's going wrong in my life. Why would I say my Redeemer lives? Why would I proclaim His goodness? Why would I proclaim His salvation? Because it's the right thing to do. And when you do that, your focus is right, and everything changes around you. When you focus on yourself and your problems and your thing, you spiral out of control into anxiety, into depression, into hopelessness. When you cry out to God and you begin to proclaim who he is and what he's done, regardless of the situation around me, whatever's happening in my life, it makes no difference. I know my redeemer lives. Get a little preachy and loud here. Sorry. It's fiery, isn't it? It's exciting to see Job do it. I'm like, I'm cheering for him. And if I'm cheering for him, you know for sure God is. You know he is. And I'm cheering for you. And I hope you're cheering for me. Because I know that God is cheering for us. That we would cry out. Oh, I want this. I've got a ton of cross-references for this. We may only do one chapter today. I don't know. I forgot we had communion today. In Ruth chapter 318, the Redeemer word here in Job is the word Goel in Hebrew. And I don't normally do that. I don't want to spend a lot of time on Hebrew because I don't think you have to know Hebrew and Greek to understand the Bible. If you can't understand the Bible the way it's written, then there's a problem. Okay. But, For the sake of this, this word redeemer is also used in the book of Ruth, which is Boaz. He's the kinsman redeemer in that story. What a beautiful story about what our Savior has done for us and how he's redeemed us. With that is this. The Goel, even despised and rejected, works to bring Job to this one hope from chapter 9, the mediator, to now a redeemer. Do you remember that in chapter 9? He says, oh, I just need a mediator. If there was a mediator, he's moved from mediator to redeemer. Not only is there someone who's going to do something on my behalf, be my lawyer against my judge or towards my judge on my behalf, he's also going to be the one who fixes it also. He's moving in the right direction. And in Ruth chapter 3, verse 18, after this all goes down, and if you don't know the story, all I can do is sum it up. Ruth has come back. She's followed her mother-in-law. There is no hope for her as far as a future She's a Moabitess. She's not a Hebrew, but she's living in the Israel land. And so she's very much an outcast and very much an alien there, but still wanted to be with uh, Naomi. And so she's beginning to glean in the fields and she runs across the field of Boaz where she's gleaning, which means you pick up after everything's been harvested. It'd be like us going out to the harvested fields and grabbing all the grains of corn we can for our livelihood. And that's how we would survive as we do that. She's doing that for her and her mother-in-law. Boaz notices her, and Ruth says, or uh, Naomi says to her, "You need to capitalize on that." That's a horrible way to put it, but that's what she basically says. After the harvest, when this is all done, you need to go to him. And you need to explain to him that you like him, and that you know I bet he likes you too. And it seems like he likes you. And that's that's the really paraphrased version of this, because we don't have time for it all but I want you to do this. I want you to ask him to redeem you, to redeem the lost inheritance, to redeem your my birthright, Naomi's birthright. But since you're a daughter-in-law, it's your birthright now also. I want you to ask him to do this for you. So she does. She puts herself under his authority, under his protection. I want you to redeem me. He says, I'll do it. I'll do it. Now there is someone closer than me that could redeem you. And if he will, fine. If he won't, I will do it. And after she comes back, Ruth comes back and explains this to her. Here's the verse. And this is what I think we need to hear this morning. Naomi says to Ruth, sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out, for the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. Now, I get teary and I get emotional, probably because of jet lag and the time change and all that. I get tired and I get teary. Yeah. yeah. But that's my job as a Christian is to sit still and to trust my Redeemer and to let him know he will not rest until this matter is concluded. We get the idea that Jesus is somehow kind of in and out with us. I'm not so sure how he feels about me today. I don't know whether he's on my side or not. And we think he's thinking that. I don't know about J.D. Was it, did we really choose him or did he kind of sneak in under the radar into this salvation thing? No, he's absolutely determined to see what he is doing to conclusion to make sure that you get to heaven. That is your redeemer. He will not stop. He will not rest. And so when Ruth hears this, sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out, for the man will not rest until he has concluded this matter this day. He will not stop. If you don't know the story, these two do get together. He does redeem her. They have a little baby named Obed. Obed has a baby named Jesse. And Jesse has a baby named David, and generations later they have a baby named Jesus. It's just a beautiful picture, a beautiful conclusion to this. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, we are chosen relatives of which Jesus has become our kinsman redeemer, the avenger of blood, that's one of the jobs of a kinsman redeemer, but also the purchaser of the lost inheritance. And here's what he says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen generation we forget that we focus so much on that word chosen we think it means some were chosen some were not or whatever you missed the point he sought you out he chose you uh, what's happening with our redeemer a kinsman redeemer is someone who is supposed to go do this it's their role it's a relative it's a brother it's a father-in-law it's a father Someone, if you get killed, is supposed to rise up on your behalf within your family and come and track down the guy that killed you and make sure that justice is done. That's their job as the kinsman redeemer for blood. But also, you're supposed to take care of their inheritance and make sure that if they got into so much debt that they can't get out of it, and if you have the ways and means, you should come in and you should make sure that that is given back to them. Purchase it for them to have their land back. Although it's a lost inheritance, my kinsman redeemer a relative, a blood relative. Now, the point of this 1 Peter 2, 9 is we were chosen. We're not. We weren't blood relatives of Jesus Christ. We're adopted into the family of God. So when you see or read the word chosen in your Bible, understand that it was not required. It was a decision he made to choose you, to choose me. I don't care about who and who was it. The fact that he did. He chose us, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. Speaking of the casual observer in your life, they don't judge accurately and they often come to hasty conclusions. People look at my life or look at your life and they say, oh man, I know what's happening there. They don't know. At best, and it's important for me to remember, at best, I'm a casual observer into your life. I see you, what, twice a week, some of you? Some of you once a week? Some of you way more than I really wanted to see you, but I, you know. (laughs) We see each other, but I'm a casual observer in your life. I don't know what goes on in your life 24-7. I hear about, and we've talked about this, you hear about some problems they've had in their life. Oh, yeah, let me pray for you, let me pray for you. And no offense, but an hour later, I'm really not thinking about your problems anymore, but you are. You're in them. You're living them. You can't escape them. And maybe occasionally throughout the week or throughout the month, I'll think about that person and the problems they reminded me that they were having and I'll pray for them again or something just because I feel like the Spirit's leading. But for the most part, I'm a casual observer. Know that about the people around you. Their assessment of your life and their assessment of your problems isn't always accurate and probably isn't. And oftentimes there's comes accusations and they come to hasty conclusions about why you are. In the place that you are. First Corinthians two fourteen sixteen. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that we may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Um as Job makes this declaration, as he makes this proclamation out loud, that's the last thing he wanted to hear. And it's one of the most important things Job could have said. It's one of the most important things we can do with our mouths is to give him praise, to spend less time complaining about what's not right in our lives, and to spend more time speaking about the things that are, what God is doing, what God has done, what he will do, his promises, past that have been fulfilled in your life the promises that he's currently working on in your life, and the promises that he says he will do, that's where we spend our time. And when we dwell on those things, when we meditate on those things, when we dwell on the good, the lovely, that's what he means by that verse, your life is brought up, it's lifted up, it's brought out of the mire, it's out of the pit. But when I spend my life bringing down and talking about and oh, it's like we're swimming in our end, some like to do that. Some like it because of the attention they can get from it. It's a very dangerous thing. They don't understand how unhealthy it is. I'm all for sharing. I think you should share. I think you should share carefully, though. I think you should share or uh, with a confidant, with a, someone who's close to you. I don't know that it has to be broadcast. I don't know that it needs to be spread for the whole world to hear. I don't know that that's healthy for you. Because when you do that, your hope is that everybody's going to come pouring into your life and forget their problems and focus on yours. And there's a feeding that takes place off of that. There's an emotional yes. Finally, validation, encouragement, or whatever. And you almost need that more than you do need God's voice in your life. More than you actually want to be healed or for the problem to go away. Because if the problem goes away, if the healing takes place, that perhaps they won't be pouring into my life anymore. They won't be thinking about me anymore. And that's far more important than my, and it, it can become that. We are to bear one another's burdens, and I think we should, but I think we need to be careful about who and how often or how loudly we proclaim. Proverbs warns us, only a fool vents all of his feelings. He's not saying we're not supposed to vent our feelings. He's not supposed to mean bottle it up and push it way down deep inside, and I'm sure it'll be fine. It won't explode. It won't come out sideways and hurt other people around you. That's not what he's saying. He's saying be careful about who you share with. Not everybody needs to know. Somebody might need to know. I know God needs to know. And if he's the only one that's listening, and he's the only one you can talk to, which is what Job is saying right here, all have forsaken me. I'm crying out to God one more time. It should be enough to bring peace. He is our comforter. He is our counselor. He is the Prince of Peace. He has a peace that surpasses understanding. None of us, nobody else does. And so we see them in that place. We see him in this place of pouring out. Let's finish up here and then we'll get into communion. I don't think I can do chapter 20 like I thought. If you should say... How shall we persecute him? If that's on your mind, since the root of the matter is found in me, be afraid of the sword for yourselves. For wrath brings the punishment of the sword that you know there's a judgment. It's a very simple concept there. And I think this is probably a much better understanding of Matthew chapter 7. Don't judge lest you be judged. That verse is probably the most misunderstood, misquoted verse in Scripture. He is not saying, don't point out sin. That is not what that verse means. That is all I come to Jesus for. And if we think we can bring other people to Jesus without that happening to them in their lives, we're mistaken and we completely missed the point of the cross. The cross happened. Jesus died on the cross because of the sin in my life. And for me to take someone to a cross and say, you need this savior from what? Nothing, Never mind. Let's not talk about it leaves them in guilt and shame, which we forget that the sinner has, that Jesus Christ is trying to lift that burden off of their shoulders, and we neglect to tell them that God can lift the burden off of them of guilt and shame from that specific sin. I'm not judging them. I'm allowing them. I'm talking to them about what God says and what the Savior's done for me. He's going to do for you. That's not judgment. This is Be careful about being the casual observer into someone else's life and coming to a wrong conclusion and making accusations when you don't know that's judgment. That is. That's what we're to avoid. And that's what Job says be careful about pulling out the sword and putting my head on the chopping block here because yours is next. Oh, I can't wait for God's judgment to come upon this earth. Are you sure? Because if it wasn't for the blood of Jesus Christ, you'd be the first one in hell. And so would I. My sins have separated me from God. And the only reason I'm not going to where I deserve to go, which is hell, to burn forever, separated from the Lord, is because Jesus stepped down and saved me from my sins. So as I look around the world and I go, oh boy, I hope Jesus gets them. I kind of don't want him to get them. I want them to know Jesus Christ so that they don't have to get God. I don't want them in hell. We don't fully understand it. I think we need to think about hell a little bit. Forever burning, separated from God, living in torment without any end in sight ever. I don't want anybody in that. I don't want to be there. And we don't want them to be there either. I want them to come to a saving relationship of Jesus Christ. And I hope if you haven't received Christ as your Lord and Savior this morning, you'd take him up on that. He is offering to you forgiveness for those sins that have separated you from God. Your sins have. I'm not going to name them. There's too many different ones to name. If I name a few, they'll think that the other ones don't count. You know what they are because the Holy Spirit's convicting you of them right now. These are the sins that have separated me from God. We know guilt and shame comes upon us. We know where that comes from. And conviction comes by the Holy Spirit to tell us, you need Jesus to pay for that guilt and shame. And if you're feeling that this morning and you need to have that lifted off of your shoulders, you need to receive Christ this morning. Receive that forgiveness. He's offering it to you as a free gift. It cost him the son's life, but it's free to you. There's nothing you can do to earn it. It's because he loves you and he offers it to you. And I hope you take it from him this morning. What a great time to have communion, to have this time where we remember what Christ has done on the cross for us. That's what these things mean. The little cup of juice that Kim, thank you, Kim, Kim is bringing me here. And the little chunk of bread that we're all going to get represents his shed blood and his broken body for us. This represents the cross. It reminds us that the cross took place and that it happened and that it was effective. And we're here to remember the one time event The one-time event, because he is no longer on the cross. He is risen from the dead. He's not continually being sacrificed. It happened a long time ago, and it's done. This reminds us of that. And that he separated us from our sins as far as the east is from the west. If you need that this morning, to have your sins separated from you as far as the east is from the west, in other words, you'll never remember them anymore, neither will God. He'll push them out of your life. They're never to be brought up again. It's as if you never sinned and you want God's righteousness given to you, not yours, but his. You can have that this morning while the guys are handing this out and you have to keep your eyes open to receive it. We, I do want to pray about that Lord. Some know of you this morning, but they've never made you king of their life. They've never accepted this forgiveness for their sins. And this morning, they want to do that. Jesus, we confess our sins to you. You promise us that if we confess our sins, you'll be faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's a beautiful progression that takes place, God. That you're not here to hurt us. In John 3, 17, you said, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In Ephesians one seven, In him we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which is unmerited favor. 1 John one nine. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. In Psalm one hundred three twelve. for as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And then finally, 2 Corinthians five seventeen. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Lord, that's what we need this morning. We confess our sin to you. We receive your forgiveness. We thank you that you've given it to us. We want you to be king and Lord of our lives. We want to remember this morning what you've done for us at the cross thousands of years ago and that it's still effective today and it will be effective for all eternity. That there's nothing and nobody that can snatch us out of your hand. That we are yours forever. And we're thankful for that. So this morning, Jesus, we are reminded we love you. We love you because you loved us first and we received that forgiveness. Lord, help us to now walk in that forgiveness, to walk in the Spirit to know that we're renewed, that we're made new, that we have the mind of Christ now, that we have a, a new soft heart, and that you want to change us and make us into who we were meant to be. Help us to surrender our lives to you, every aspect of it to you and to not hold anything back from your touch, that you might come in and do whatever needs to happen to give us and for us to be the best life you've ever that you've always wanted for us to live in obedience, to live in holiness, in purity, to live in joy, to be gracious, to be long-suffering, to be patient, to be kind. We want to become your hands and feet in this world. That we might become everything that you wanted us to be. So this morning we give you our lives. If not again for the first time, Lord, we give you our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's eat. Lord, we just cracked vessels here. That's why we break our glasses. To remind ourselves that we're just broken vessels for you. And it's not the vessel. That beautiful alabaster flask that was broken over Jesus and the beautiful perfume that poured out of him had nothing to do with the flask, but had everything to do with what was in the flask. And that's what filled the house with the fragrance. And that's what we want in our lives. We want to be those flasks. We want to be those vessels, knowing that we're cracked, but filled with you. That when people are encountering us, when they run into us, when we encounter them, that that's the smell they smell, the fragrance of Christ. And that's our heart in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks.